Hello and welcome back to the podcast, The Purpose of Wealth, the secrets to protecting and growing intergenerational wealth, brought to you by Mutual Trust. I'm Narelle Hooper, your host. So now we know that families of wealth have a huge ripple effect on the economy in terms of jobs, entrepreneurship and community impact. But did you know we're also in the midst of what they call the Great Wealth Transfer? Here's Dr Chris Graves from the University of Adelaide Business School. It's massive. It's going to be a fourfold increase in wealth transfer over the next 30 years because of the growing accumulation of wealth together with the ageing demographics of societies and Western economies. It's estimated that $3.5 trillion of wealth will pass between generations in Australia over the next 20 years. It's already begun, yet there's a huge point of tension emerging. Will these families take the necessary steps to ensure their wealth thrives when they throw the keys to the kids and the grandkids? According to the experts, more often than not, family wealth transfers go wrong. Here's Jeff Steiner from Mutual Trust. I would say one of the biggest reasons why they fail is poor communication across family members, and over time that can really deteriorate trust. So let's think about the families that do go the distance. It's not luck. They think about wealth differently. The really great question is what of the qualitative capitals will be transferred so that that financial capital has a purpose. And they find a way to talk about the elephant in the room. There can be a real fear around having these discussions or it goes the other way and it all just feels too hard. I'm giving it all to the lost dog's home and I'm going to put my head in the sand. Quite often we have that next generation of families like that coming to us saying, can you help us? We can see that this is going to be a train wreck unless we start talking about it. With us are two experts in the field of family wealth. From the US at his home in Aspen is James J. Hughes, Jr. Jay's work on intergenerational wealth has been world leading. He's been advising families for more than 50 years. He's literally written a book, several in fact, on the factors that shape successful family governance and wealth preservation. And with us is Lizzie Goldfinch, Director in the Family Office Team at Mutual Trust in Melbourne. It's the great wealth transfer, the shift of wealth between the generations. According to the research, the major reason why wealth transfers are not successful is a lack of communication and a breakdown in trust, around about 60%. The second is insufficient preparation of the heirs. And thirdly, families not defining their purpose of wealth. Oh, and finance? Well, that's way down the list at around about 3%. Jay, you've been advising and guiding families for over five decades, so I'm sure those numbers that I've talked about won't be a surprise to you, but they were a surprise to me, and I think maybe most people. So what are we missing? I think raw numbers are just raw numbers. These are, however, startling amounts of financial capital. I wouldn't say we're missing anything, Nero, but what I would say, and has been my consistent feeling over the second half of my professional life is that what is actually being transferred is lineage, custom, ways of doing things, how to imagine, human intellectual capital is being exchanged, the ability to make decisions together, as you mentioned, is a a very serious issue, so social capital. And I think the most important exchange, if we want to have flourishing societies, and we do, Then there's also a spiritual element that is exchanged, which is a conscious, purposeful belief 
that a family can flourish, that this is possible and it can be done. I'm not speaking to how, I'm speaking to what I think is a why question from you. So I think what will be transferred on statistics will be financial capital. The really great question is what of the qualitative capitals will be transferred so that that financial capital has a purpose. That sounds like a, a revolutionary idea to me, uh, considering the numbers of what we mostly talk about. I wanted to kind of get some context as to how you got to this. So you describe a midlife crisis that shifted your frame from how to why. Can you share how that came about and how that changed things and why you're so clearly passionate about this work? I'm going to touch on two events. The first event was in 1974 when I was invited to Singapore by a man I had not met. I was a lawyer in New York City at that time, and no one was able to tell me why he invited me. So I have to say I was quite anxious and going halfway around the world, and I hadn't even had a passport. It was quite an adventure. And Narelle, when I got into his office, and I won't go into the whole story, it's in my books, people can read it if they want. He said the reason he invited me was that the Chinese had this shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve proverb. And I said to him, well, that happened in my family too. And that began a journey. I spent six months after I met him traveling around the world and reading and asking questions and came to an astonishing revelation for me and that was that every culture, culture, I'm not saying country, culture on earth had that proverb or some form of it. So I came back to him six months later and said, I can tell you that you are among those that are at least awake to what the issue is. And, the, and then culturally, how do you think in your culture about how your family might flourish and have a successful fourth and fifth generation or not? Now, also in that window of time, I came to the very early awareness, Nero, that that process that the proverb discusses is exactly the same process as in physics in our universe, energy to matter to energy, or entropy, the law of entropy, that all things are energy, and that when they become matter, in some period of time, they will go back to energy. So I realized that the proverb wasn't just a proverb about a family. It was a universal proverb of how the rules of our universe work. And then in that same awakening, and I know this is long, but I think the process may be very interesting to people. I realized that Mother Nature is very happy when her laws work, and she's astonished when there are people who actually understand the rules, live with them, and have a different outcome. So families that are willing to look at the cultural question, look at the question of the energy from the first generation and matter that comes from it, the family matter, not the money, family matter, and consistently seek to grow that. And that's that human intellectual. So, so I three things happened at once. Now comes the second point. Right along on time at the age of 49, I found myself in Dante's dark wood with no way out, the great beginning of his great poem, and perhaps the, in all of literature, of the greatest statement of the midlife crisis. There were a number of things that drove me into that crisis, but for this particular conversation, what drove me into that 
dark wood was I found I was not helping. I was answering needs. I was becoming an incredible expert. And lots of nice people around the world were patting me on the back and saying, oh, you're a great expert. But I wasn't helping. The families weren't doing better. They were looking like the proverb was going to come true. To clarify that, you were providing really high-level advice, the best advice that you could be providing. And here's the problem. The expert advice wasn't helping. And so I found myself in that moral quandary, which, of course, is what a midlife crisis is. How could I do what I was doing if it wasn't helping? So I was sat there in the wood for a year and a half, and I committed myself to a different process. I committed myself in that time to what the Buddhists call the process of developing a beginner's mind. And the beginner's mind I needed was to start all over again and to give myself permission to know I didn't know and enter into very different conversations with family. So I began to ask people, what was their big aspiration? What was their big dream? Oh my goodness, did I get wonderful answers. And I began to see what a family consisted of, which is aspirations and dreams. And then I began to say, well, then what can we do to have a system that enables both the conversations that create awareness of aspirations, and also then how do we bring them to life? And this half of my life has been incredibly joyful, hard, complex, but incredibly joyful because I actually find I can help. And so I'll finish this by saying that one of the things that came to me in that year of deep humility in that midlife crisis was never again to ever ask anybody, what do you need? And to commit myself to only asking, how can I help? A very unloyally-like question as well. That underscores that shift of that how to the why. Yes. That has become so fundamental. I wanted to bring in Lizzie now and say, how did you become so invested in helping families with these issues? So I did have a finance background. So I studied commerce and economics. And when I was starting my university, I thought I probably should get some real life work experience. And I was very fortunate to be introduced and to start working in a family office. They probably didn't call themselves a family office at this time, but it was a number of families with financial resources based in Brisbane. What I quickly learned by just having conversations with them was what kept them up at night wasn't how is this property going or we need to release it or how's the investment portfolio going, but it was quite often their children. Maybe my son's just dropped out of uni again or, you know, the kids are doing so well, but I don't want this to be a burden for them in the future. So I saw firsthand that there were worries. The why was a lot more than the financial why quite often. And then also working with some children and also some young inheritors who had tragically lost parents at a very early age and were sort of, as Jay says, had this meteor that came from out of space and changed their whole life. For one of these children, one of their friends actually said, you're so lucky now, you know, you have all of this money. And his answer was, I've just lost my parents I'm not feeling lucky. And so these experiences 
really, I guess, changed the mindset that I had coming in from a financial side. And it got me very interested in this intergenerational wealth. For me, it's about how do we help individual family members and the family to really thrive. And I think the opportunity, like the research shows, is that positive societal impact when we have thriving individuals and families with financial resources. You mentioned this concept of wealth as a burden and with that, the things keeping them awake at night, the fear. Tell us more about that. That perspective often comes from the rising generation. Maybe they might feel ill-equipped to manage the responsibilities. Again, not just of wealth, but of life. Who am I? What's my identity and career? Who's my family? You know, maybe they're starting their own families. And I think in Australia, what we find at that time is a lot of the younger generation, not only flying the coop, but leaving Australia, moving cities, moving overseas where they can really establish who they are without someone saying, oh, I know your mum and dad or your so-and-so's son or daughter, which is what they quite often receive in social situations. So I think the worry from the, I call it the giving generation, is they don't want to entitle their children. One of my clients says, I want my kids to be useful. To him, that doesn't matter if you're volunteering or you're working, but you know, I want you to have a sense of purpose. So I think that generation, it's often around, I don't want to influence that work ethic and have this entitleitis. And the perspective of the inheriting generation, which isn't always understood by their parents, is just their internal potentially struggle with that, what it means for their life, for their career, for their family, and how they start to learn as well. This particular challenge you've described for the rising generations, wealth as a burden, a lifetime sentence. You had a particular approach to bringing these people together to share their learnings. From early on when I had these younger clients, they would share with me and they would say, it's great that we can have this conversation you understand, you get me. You know, I don't feel that I can have this conversation with some of my other friends who might think, how do I have any problems because I have money? And so I was having these various conversations and I thought, I'd really like you all to get together. (laughs) We'll call it group therapy after the fact. So what I did is I put on dinner. I don't know even what it was. I'm not the best cook, so God only knows. And I said, "Bring you bring a bottle of wine And I had 12 people at my house to come, all rising gens. And you know what? We didn't even talk about families and money. They all knew that they were part of a family with financial resources. And what I've actually loved about that dinner ever since, I think there's been various job opportunities that have come from these connections. I think there's even been an engagement. But I know that they're still in touch today. And so that's something that Now at Mutual Trust, we have a rising generation program, a cohort where we try and bring children of wealth together to not only share those experiences, but to learn together. I used to go to conferences and it'd be all the parents talking about their kids. And I was like, where are the kids? You know, have we asked them what help do they need? It's so important in this work with families that we engage and we give a voice to all generations and all people around the table, whether that's a spouse, it's the children, or it's the partners of the children, or it's the grandchildren. 
that they're all involved in this why and defining that why because it really sets them up for success over the long term. Jay, how does that resonate with you? I'm quite conscious that we actually have a generational span with the two of you on our program today. I am 81 for the audience. So yes, some of us silent generation are still around. (laughs) And then Lizzie, which generation would you describe yourself? I was going to say, I'm not going to say my age. (laughs) You don't have to. A generational split. I'm a millennial, but at at the higher end of the millennials. Yeah. Naturally, the higher end, Lizzie. Well, yeah. Narelle, let me um, pick up this theme that you've asked about and that Lizzie so beautifully illustrated. If we could for a moment think of our use of words, for lawyers this matters a lot, and think about what words mean, I think that we clear up things that have been confused in this field for a very long time. The biggest problem is the word wealth itself. I spent a good part of the second half of my career trying to find a word to substitute for wealth because everywhere I heard it, all I heard was financial capital. And I thought, that's not a family's wealth. Took me a long time to go into the dictionary and I looked up the word wealth. To my absolute amazement, I discovered that the word wealth means well-being. Every family I've helped since I have understood that wealth meant well-being and has done the following exercise. I asked them, close their eyes, go to the most beautiful place on earth where they go where they're happy and sit there and smell and think and experience. And then I asked them to bring there the people they love the most in the world and have them experience the beauty of this place. And then very gently, I asked them to open their eyes again. And I said to them, this is your wealth. That consciousness is everything in this work. Financial capital is something else. One of the great mysteries to me in this world, and it is a mystery, is how we took the word wealth to mean something extraordinary, well-being, and we dumbed it down to money. Well, one of the things every family that I've been able to talk to about this, how quickly the ability of that family to change toward well-being is when it understands that's its wealth. So when it can say to each other, oh, we're talking about our wealth now, and we're talking about each other's well-being, and then they can discriminate in the right sense of that word, because the financial capital does have a role, which is growing the human intellectual, spiritual, and social capital. But it's not well-being. It's financial capital. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the families in Australia saw wealth as well-being? which they do as soon as somebody says, do you know that's what the word means? And can you consciously discriminate or discern, I think discern is even better, between what are you talking about? Are you talking about wealth? Okay, well-being. You're talking about financial capital? Okay. Now I know how to engage with you. Lizzie, you talk about the different perspectives. How do you move that into a constructive conflict space? Typically, We like to spend time individually with family members to understand what's really important to them. And then with that, look at those common themes across the family to come up with what is our family's purpose. And by first defining that, then we can put in place 
I guess, strategies to say, well, how are we making good decisions? What do we need in our family to make better decisions? How are we learning? What do we need to make sure we keep learning? And quite often for our families, the agenda of family meetings is itemised by those five forms of capital or the five purposes of wealth that are common within families. And we're talking about how are we continuing to nurture these forms of capital and grow our family to not just be a great family fortune, but a great family. And how do we bring out the best in our family members than just give them the best? I'll give you an example of this in practice. A family that I was working with, one of the key pillars for them is giving to the community. They had set up the foundation, which means they have to give a certain amount of money each year from this foundation to charitable organisations. We had a family meeting and there were two sort of 20-year-olds and mum and dad in there and we were talking about how important this pillar was to the family and the daughter said, you know, I know that we're giving from the foundation, which is great, but the way that we have defined community when we did this process with Lizzie and the team was that it was not just our treasure but our time and our talent and our ties or networks as well. And she said, I mean, we've ticked the box for how much we've given from the foundation this year, but where have any of us actually given our skills or gone and volunteered and helped an organisation? I thought it was such an astute observation from the family member to say, we've said this is really important, but right now we've got a bit of a gap there. We're not actually living that. And so then they made a plan that over the next year they were going to do a family volunteer day with one of the organisations that they support and then the year after that maybe go and do something globally as well and really look to how they could partner with some of these organisations over time. So I guess in practice, once you've defined that purpose, it's a really great way to be saying, okay, well, how are we building each of these And a really great way to do that is to make sure that you're coming back to those regular meetings with families to help them make those good decisions. All of those pillars or all of those purposes are part of the agenda because so often it can get dominated and we spend all our time there. When I was doing this work myself, I would very often say to a family, look, if you think you might want to do this, what might you want to know about each other In a controlled environment, I would ask them, okay, let's find out how we learn. If we could find out how each other learns, because I want to be taught the way I learn best. So now when we get to this joint decision-making, which might be, shall we have strawberry ice cream or chocolate, at least we know how the people around the table process that question. And all of a sudden, we get a good outcome. Lizzie, as you and I have learned, little projects at the beginning, take little steps. Find out who you are, because eventually, if you decide to go on the journey of growing a great flourishing family, having a great fourth and fifth generation, you're going to face the question, will you stand up for the promise that you make that I will help you when you know you can't know if the other person will act? They can make a promise, but that doesn't mean they'll carry it out. And I don't believe you can ask anybody to make that promise and they don't know each other. Start small. Have your family meetings with things that you can learn about each other. It's so basic. That was a great sense check. (laughs) Can I build on that? Yes. Now that we've gone that way, 
I think two things sort of came to mind, Jay, when you were, were sharing that. I think one, when you're working with the first generation who are typically very entrepreneurial, very quick at making decisions, want to get moving, it takes a lot of encouragement for them to take a slower path with family. And secondly, we're talking about wealth transition and success being getting to third, fourth, fifth generation. It's important to define sort of what success and failure look like because I think starting to learn together, starting to do some things together, if at that point everyone decides we don't buy into this, I'm not giving up my freedom for this freedom with the family, Mm -hmm. and they decide to not collectively manage financial capital into the future, that's success as well. I, I think agree. the failure that we see or we hear is when it's been involuntary. But I think families coming together to start the conversation, to have what we call courageous conversations and actually plan, is this something we want to do together? Because deciding not to, and we certainly have families who get on, but said, actually, we want to be able to come together at Christmas with our families. And the best chance of us doing that is to not manage things together. <laughs> right, And that's success yes. as well. This is a marathon, not a sprint, which depending on some personalities in the family, we can only go as fast as the slowest person quite often. This is where sometimes, whether it's generational or it's a founder, It's understanding where we're each coming from on that journey, which is part of learning, learning about each other, learning about our perspectives and the views that we have of the world. What does success look like and what does failure look like? Jay? One of our great colleagues, Dennis Shaffey, wrote a book called Borrowed from Our Grandchildren. It's the first book we have, Norell, that's a scientific, based on real interviews, real facts of success from my perspective. You can't get in the book unless you're in the third generation, you're doing fine. And some of the families that he was writing about were in the fourth, fifth, and sixth generation. This is a really interesting book for the question of success and failure. So what is the key to Dennis's finding? Many years ago, I wrote a book called The Compact Among Generations. All of the families in Dennis's book express affinity, not blood. Blood is ridiculous and totally unimportant. You either transcend blood or or it buries you. But the great question of family is affinity. Now, what does affinity mean? Affinity in the dictionary has 14 definitions. It's the positive connecting word in every art and science that we know. And the first definition in Webster's is human relationships other than by consanguinity, which is a fancy word for blood. So the word affinity defines success in the sense of what we're talking about. If you have that positive connection that is affinity, high connection, then you will be successful. If you don't, you will not be successful. So that's the measure, in my view, of the question. Now, someone will say, well, can you grow affinity? Uh, First, look at your heart. You like each other. Are you curious about each other? Do you think you might want to help each other? These are the important questions. And are we fostering a community, a purpose, remember the pinky up here, that is creating an environment that could incent affinity? Are we doing that together? 
We don't know the outcome. I agree with Lizzie. The shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve, by the way, isn't necessarily painful or suffering. It just wasn't affinity. That's okay. That's not a bad outcome. But if you are a family who wants to flourish and who wants to have a third and fourth and fifth generation, then you've got to look at the question of affinity. I mean, Dennis's book saves me millions of words because he's written about success. <laughs> and we're delighted that we're going to be interviewing Dennis Jaffe in an upcoming episode of the podcast. What does success look like? Lizzie? For every family, I think it can be different. And it's more in the process of exploring and learning and defining a common purpose if there is one and do we want to work and invest together in the future as opposed to it ending up in fights. We say two people win, the lawyers on each side, you know, we hope we, and that's, right. that's Jay, right. you know, back in the day. I think success is starting on the journey and it's never too early or too late to start to have the conversations and to work out for your family what success looks like and therefore how you might get there, particularly for founding generations. It can be really terrifying to open the kimono and start to have these conversations. But as we've shared today, the conversation doesn't start with the money or with the financial resources. It starts with what money is the tool to get more of in your life. And so I think hopefully that gives some comfort to founding generations because there can be a real fear around having these discussions or it goes the other way and it all just feels too hard. I'm giving it all to the lost dog's home and I'm going to put my head in the sand. And quite often we have that next generation of families like that coming to us saying, can you help us? We can see that this is going to be a train wreck unless we start talking about it, but maybe mum or dad don't want to have those conversations. To reaffirm, it's having the conversation and seeing where that process goes and for all family members to buy into that decision wherever you land is what success looks like to me. This is a really good segue to the Mutual Trust Adelaide University Business School white paper, Why a Modern Family Office Matters. And you're both familiar with the research. Just wanted to check in with you on, first with you, Jay, and then Lizzie. How does this research gel with what you're seeing in the, the US, Jay? And then Lizzie, your impressions on the situation in Australia? I think the report is excellent. It's asking the right questions. It's observing the right things. What I would say at the base is that the report reminds us of something very, very important that Aristotle said. Back in 500 BC, he said, you cannot have a flourishing society unless the families that make it up are flourishing themselves, or vice versa. A flourishing family is the building block of a flourishing society. So this question of financial transfer is irrelevant, as we've been saying. The question is whether families in Australia and America will get on the well-being bandwagon. And I think the report is asking that question brilliantly. If your family has extra financial resources and you want to intermediate those financial resources, start intermediating with the qualitative capitals of your family so you flourish. If you flourish, you will then almost certainly build a flourishing society. 
Lizzie? From an Australian context, Narelle, firstly, there's just not a lot of research around family offices in Australia. And to have this and the insights of the 30-odd families that were interviewed to be part of it, I think those stories really bring the statistics of the positive socioeconomic impact to life. I think a place to start for families, again, that might be thinking, where do I start and often default to that financial capital? So hopefully it will encourage more families in Australia who are typically in those earlier stages of planning and thinking out 100 years and 50 years. So I think it's an exciting opportunity. We will over the next 10 years, it's the $3.5 trillion that's going to transfer It is such an opportunity for families to really thrive and, Jay, as you're saying, for therefore our society to become more flourishing as well. Our hope with this research is that families feel a bit more empowered to start on that journey and to realise the impact that they can have. And I would add that the report could say, or the second chapter of it, that the growing role in our world of chief learning officers Emerging in family offices is the next major step to well-being, that it is the family office itself evolving in the same way as corporate world is evolving in Australia and America, to having inside of itself a serious senior officer whose task is to do exactly what we're discussing tonight. Mm -hmm. The responsibility for that intermediating financial capital into the well-being of the human beings. That's the next stage, I believe, of our field. Lizzie, what changes will happen in Australia as a result of this massive transfer? What's it going to look like? What springs to mind, firstly, is the impact of this, I think, on women. Previously, you know, wills of 50, 60 years ago used to leave a lot of wealth to sons and the women were expected to marry well. And I think for the first time in history we're we're seeing and the wills that, you know, our team are helping draft for our families is that's increasingly, if not in most cases, very equal. And so I think we've got, for the first time in history, women inheriting a lot more money, but of course a lot more women founders over this time as well. So I think it's an opportunity for women. Of course, there are other challenges that can come from that in terms of feeling fiscally unequal in your relationship. And for women to try and build that confidence as they become more competent in managing not only the financial resources that they will inherit, their sense of identity and purpose as well. From an Australian perspective, there is a lot of wealth that has come from one or one or two decision makers, which for the first time will lead to multiple decision makers in the rising generation. When you've got that change of decision making that necessitates having good governance like Jay talked about and good processes anchored in what's important to us. And so families really need to be getting prepared now on Do we want to work and invest together? Do we want to make collective decisions together as we learn about each other? How does that work? And really start that. And the final one that that springs to mind, this is not just in Australia, but because people are living longer, this transition is happening when the rising gen, or or Jay, you said before, the rising gen, rising gen, um, (laughs) are much older. So they've had a life and established their careers and 
I think as part of these transition, and Jay, I'm going to shout out to one of your books, The Cycle of the Gift, is really thinking about how can this wealth enhance the lives of our family members? And perhaps given this age demographic, are there things that we could be doing now or earlier that might support and enhance the lives of our family members? I feel like that's a really interesting concept to be thinking about. Well, when does this transition occur? What could we maybe be doing now that might help us achieve that rather than waiting until a later point in time? May I just add for Australia and America one quick point. The future of in both of our societies is that if financial capital is retained, it will end up by the third generation of the family with 90% in trust. One of the great, great awakenings that is occurring in that tiny old, old area of property management is a trust that starts with the sentence, this trust is a gift of love, and follows with the sentence that Lizzie has said twice now, this trust exists to enhance the lives of its beneficiaries. This is a sea change, and there's nothing that keeps lawyers from Australia or America from starting the trust deed out with those two sentences. That moves the conversation from the quantitative to the qualitative, where it needs to be if human beings are to be able to understand how to live inside these systems. And hopefully, some of our listeners will say to their lawyers, hey, I want those sentences at the beginning of my trust. Therein lies the challenge. Yeah, I want a qualitative document. Formally issue the invitation to advisors. I wanted to discuss the role of the family office and the modern family office. Jay, you do a really lovely job of describing the three phases. How can families recognise the phases of wealth that occur within families and why that's important? Language has been a problem in this field because it doesn't describe what actually is happening. So whether it's wealth meaning well-being, whether it's blood being irrelevant and affinity being, I mean, whatever you go, we have to get the language to actually describe what human beings, not professional people, understand about how life works. So if you take this subject of family office, every office that I've ever seen begins with the founders, these immensely creative people who take energy and turn it into matter. That man and that or that woman and husband and wife the office comes to life as their treasurer's function, sometimes because they're making so much money and their energy to matter that they can't get it invested in the business, so they have to begin to professionalize it. Sometimes it's because they have a liquidity event. And very rarely is it because somebody dies and the family says, we need a family office. Now, the peculiar thing is that it doesn't become a family office in its second stage it becomes the office of the trustees. In Australia and America, by the time you get to the third generation of a family that has retained its financial capital, 90% is in trust. So actually for a long, long time in that family, nobody's gonna own anything, actually. Getting it clear when you move from the founders to the trustees is an enormous gift to the people that are gonna be living in that system. Now, when does it get to be a family office? In my view, it becomes a family office when a family member, not the founders, voluntarily, that's a key word, 
ask the executives who are managing the office of the trustees if those people will provide them personal services separate from any other clients of that firm, becoming a client of those people. And when the people who are in that function decide to take on a new client, then it becomes a family office. Getting that clear clarifies all kinds of conflicts. The trustees do not represent the beneficiaries directly, personally. They represent them as beneficiaries. The founders may have children, and the children may be using services, but they're not using services voluntarily. So if the family office field could actually describe what it is actually doing, then the people living in those systems would actually be able to understand how to live in them. You give a, a really good analogy of how members living within intergenerational wealth in that system can define how they live with it. The lines of a play come to mind. I am in the process of writing a book with two colleagues in which we're asking a nasty question. Now, that's nasty to the lawyers and the bankers and my colleagues. We're asking them, can you clients live in the plan that you made? We've now interviewed over 200 people. The answer has been no, 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 no. Wow. So how do the lay human beings in these families, how do they cope with living in a plan that they can't live in? The plan was not written for them. The plan is a play. The play was written to avoid taxes, avoid creditors, and frankly, often as an Ozymandian uh, memorial of the great person who was the Genesis person. But in none of those three situations did the planner consider whether the human beings could live in the plan. They had a client. The client retained them to do something. They did something. Now, what happens, Norell, is now that meteor from outer space that we talked about a while ago comes with an inheritance or a trust gets created and you're suddenly the beneficiary of it. And it has nothing to do with you at all, does it? Really, it has to do with somebody else. So now a new play begins or another act in the play. And the question that you're asking me is, well, how does the beneficiary or the family member in this system define a role for themselves? They can't because there isn't any role for them in the play that was written. So a little bit like Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, as we chatted about in the Hamlet, two men who were in the four acts of the play and have no lines. So you're in the play, but you don't have any lines. So you hang around, you hang around, but you don't know why you're in the play. So I would say to our advisory people that are listening, the people that are writing plays, have you considered whether you are writing in the play roles for people that they will be able to play in your play? Are you the author of their characters? And saying, well, of course, they're beneficiaries. Who's, what does that mean? That's a legal position. People aren't born beneficiaries. It's, it's, this is ridiculous. Now, they could become great beneficiaries, particularly, by the way, if the trust says it's a gift of love and if it says it's designed to enhance their lives. But the problem, Norell, is the human beings can't live in the play because they don't have a role in the play. Well, writing the lines, the six characters in search of an author, old Italian play comes to yes, mind. Yes, there you are. 
Be the playwright. Yeah. Be a playwright. Lizzie, what are the positive outcomes for families who execute their strategy? It's incredible to see families take ownership of this and once they've defined this purpose and have the strategies in how they're going to implement them to really see them bring this to life. If anything, it's more just exploring, more learning together. And that's really got them motivated and empowered. They can sort of see the plan and also then reflect on the progress that we do. Because I think as well, and, you know, in working with families over years is this whole hedonic adaption, you know, they get better and they make better decisions together and they start working well together and they forget where they were at the start of this journey and the bar keeps getting high. It's incredibly encouraging to see families really motivated to achieve the impact. We've had families where for them in thinking about the elements of the gemstone, which are in the paper, they decided to leave 80% of their wealth to charitable causes. So initially that's gone into a foundation. That was what was really important to them. They said, we have enough. We had a client in his fifties who had exited his business and got listed. I think he spent about 18 months sort of setting up what he called a family office and getting the infrastructure in place. And it wasn't long before he was back in helping others build businesses, being really active in the community, you know, not having passive grant giving, but actually set up a charity and other things and also families around their family harmony that can now come together and have some enjoyable time, whereas they used to always talk about the business. They felt there was never any separation between business and family time, and they now have some forums where we can start to separate that out, and they've just said, oh, it's just changed my relationship and and the grandparents' and the grandchildren's relationship that we've just changed the conversation here around, you know, the family harmony And there is such a wonderful community of families in Australia who then, you know, spend time sharing or connecting, mentoring other people, sharing their insights. And it's really, I think, humbling to see that and the community in Australia as sharing this knowledge and, you know, this emergence of sort of this chief learning officers. And I think that's what the report also shows. And Jay, I love this sort of chapter two notion, you know, it found quite often these founders offices and single family offices are really focused on the financial resources. And that in Australia, where the families that are really thriving have access to, which is typically through a multifamily office, more of these services that can really support the purpose in a much more holistic way and bring the whole family on that learning journey as well. Jay, you'll have some examples as well. One of the characteristics of families that succeed that we haven't talked about, so I will offer this late part of our conversation. Social anthropology is very clear that for a human community to thrive, it must grow elders. What are the kinds of things that elders are concerned about? Well, they're not concerned about the financial capital, frankly. They're concerned about whether the family has a future. They're concerned about the well-being of each of the family members. Great families intentionally discover their elders. They intentionally grow them. There are people in every family I've been involved with whose interest is larger than self. So if I was to say what I see as glue, 
It is that the great families intentionally every generation discover their elders and grow their elders. And here's the key. Elders never tell anybody what to do. They ask questions. They tell stories. They illustrate, but they never tell anybody what to do. We need to grow those people. We need to find them and grow them and then not listen to them, but hear the music that they offer. What is the sounds that they send us and the enthusiasm that they have for growing a great family? Jay Hughes in Aspen and Lizzie Goldfinch, that's been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. The family is a learning system, the chief learning officer, now the council of elders. This notion of trust that is a gift to enhance the lives of future generations. Thank you both. Thank you, Narelle. It was an incredible privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Lizzie. That's it for this episode of the Purpose of Wealth podcast. In the next episode, we find out what's behind the big mindset shifts in wealth advice and why it matters. So what exactly is Wealth 3.0? And what does the future of family wealth advice look like? Wealth managers are saying, wait a minute, there are so many wonderful things that families do. Let's look at the family's strengths. Let's look at not how wealth is going to hurt your family, but let's talk about the possibilities of how you want to use your wealth. We speak to Dr. Dennis Jaffe, a leading architect in family enterprise who co-wrote the seminal Wealth 3.0, The Future of Family Wealth Advising. And we find out from Brad Simmons, partner in the family office with Mutual Trust, why you should prepare your heirs. He said, when I was in my 40s, my father threw me the metaphoric keys to the castle. He said, this is all yours, son. Good luck. He said, I felt entirely underprepared. I didn't know much about investment markets. I didn't know a lot about management and leadership. I certainly didn't know much around family governance and estate planning. He said, so I caught those keys. I've been really trying to catch up ever since and felt massively unprepared. He said, I'm not going to let that happen to my daughters. An exclusive Insider's View coming up in Episode 3. Want to find out more about the research Why the Modern Family Office Matters? Head to mutualtrust.com.au or email us at purposeofwealth at mutualtrust.com.au. I'm Narelle Hooper. I'll catch you next time.